In any transaction, there are two important questions that you have to ask and have to be answered. And they are questions that are a lot different from one another. There may be more questions, but these are two really big ones. What is it worth and what is it going to cost me? And I've learned recently those are radically different from a, a yard sale that we had uh, just a couple weeks ago. The, the buyer's not concerned about what it's worth. <laughs> they want to know what's it going to cost me. And usually they want it to be a dollar or less. No matter what the item is, no matter how much it's worth, I want that to cost me very little. And then it's also interesting how something takes on a greater significance when you want to sell it. You, you, can, you can outline all the reasons why I, you should buy this. You really need this. This has great value. It is worth so much. Well, then why are you getting rid of it? <laughs> why do you want to sell it? Why has the car been on the lot for the last year? It's important to think about things that are important to us. Kids, you can even know what worthiness about. If something is worthy, it means you think it's important. You might have dolls that are important to you or video games that are important to you. Teenagers, money might be really important to you, not to you adults though, right? Or, or how others perceive you might be really important to you. Those things you consider to have great worth. Well, when we consider our relationship to God, we consider what it means to live for His glory. As we consider Jude and what he's been teaching, that, that we must contend for the faith, that we must guard it against any false doctrine, any distortions. We need to guard the gospel. As we think about that, we may be tempted to think only about what it will cost us. He spent a big portion of his letter talking about the ungodly and their destruction and what we must do to protect and guard the faith. And we may be tempted to think, well, what is it going to cost me to do this? When rather, the way Jude ends shows us we should consider, consider instead God's great worth. Jude ends his letter with this doxology in which he cannot contain himself any longer. He wants to delight in God. He recognizes the great worth of God and he just wants to delight in Him. So you remember at the beginning of the letter of Jude, he says, I was eager to write you about our common salvation, but I found it necessary instead because of these attacks to write to you to do this, contend for the faith. Well, I think Jude is kind of smuggled in at the end of the book, our common salvation, that he might spend a moment drawing together the people of God into the adoration of the worthiness of God. And so I pray that God would move in this way this morning as we consider in particular who he is, and his power, what he is able to do. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, as we come to this, your word, we pray that you would move among us, that you would open our hearts and our minds to comprehend the greatness of your worth, that we would understand who you are, that we would understand your power, and that we would stand in adoration. We would stand in awe of who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. From our <clears throat> passage this morning, I want you to see two main truths about the worthiness of God. 
We're called here to not settle for substitutes when it comes to the object of our worship. We're called to understand that God alone is worthy of our worship, so reserve it for Him alone. Live for His glory. Live to glorify and enjoy Him forever. So these two main truths that I'd like us to see, both concerning worship, are first, you should delight in the worthiness of what God is able to do. And second, you should delight in the worthiness of who God is. What His power and His identity. So first, let's consider what God is able to do. Let's delight in Him this morning in our songs, in our prayers, in the hearing of the preaching and reading of His Word because of what He is able to do. Jude says God is able to do two things. First, He's able to keep you from stumbling. And second, He is able to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. So, that God is able speaks to His power, to His ability. But it's more than that for Jude and and his readers. When a mother stands in the water waiting for her little one to jump in, she might say, I can catch you. I have the ability. I can catch you. But she's not just saying, I might catch you. I have the ability if I choose to catch you. She is assuring her little one, I not only have the power to catch you, I will surely do it. I will catch you. In the same way, Jude is not saying that God is able But he may or may not deliver on his ability. He's saying God is able and it is a certainty that he will do these things for you. He is able to keep you from stumbling. He is able to present you blameless before him. Remember, Jude's charge has been contend for the faith. Don't let these false teachers who are distorting the gospel of grace turning it into licentiousness and living for their own selfish desires. Don't let these false teachers lead you astray. The emphasis has been on the Christian's action to defend against ungodly intruders. But Jude here reminds them that ultimately God is the one who will do it. God is the one who will keep you from tripping up and falling down into these errors. Second, God is able to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. So consider the image here. Get this in your mind. The image is of that great day when we will stand before the God who made us. Already in Jude, we have seen this emphasis on the end times. Do you remember in verse 6, we read about the angels being kept until that great day of judgment. And in verse 15, we saw Enoch's prophecy that the Lord would come with his legion of angels to execute judgment on all the ungodly. In verse 18, we see the reference to the apostles who predicted the false teachers. He said, in the last times, there will be these. In verse 21, we see this worshipful waiting for Jesus to return and pour out his mercy on us. And in verse 23, we have this image of snatching some out of the fire who are being led astray. In addition, Jude tells his readers to hate even the garment stained by the flesh. So in contrast to being stained by sin, Jude's readers here are pictured as being presented before God's glorious presence, blameless, without blemish. Really, I think Jude envisions that great day when Moses' request will be fulfilled 
for those who belong to God in Jesus Christ. Do you remember what Moses said? Please show me your glory. I want to see your glory. And God caused his goodness to pass before him, but the Lord said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. It is impossible for sinful humanity to stand in the glorious presence of God and not be consumed. So God passed by Moses as he was in the cleft of the rock, and Moses saw as it, as it were the hindquarters of God's glory as he passed by. But on that day, brothers and sisters, the Lord himself will present his people before himself blameless, before his glorious presence, blameless and with great joy. We will not see just a part of the glory of God in passing. We will stand in the very midst of his glory and we will not be consumed, but filled with unspeakable joy. We will stand before him in the radiant beauty of sinless righteousness. In our American culture, appearance is very important. Just about everybody cares about appearances. You say, I don't care about appearances. Yes, you do. Don't lie. We all care about appearances, how we look. At least in some sense, it's why you wear what you wear. It's why I shave my head. I think it looks good. It's why you do the hair the way you do your hair. It's, it's why you chose the profile picture you did. And on and on and on, we could go on. You want to look good, at least you want to look presentable. You've heard that before. I remember hearing that a lot growing up. You don't have to look, you don't have to have the best clothes or the best shoes. You don't have to have the latest fashions. Just look presentable. And you wouldn't believe it, but when I was in my early teens, I had to have my hair just perfect before going out in public. You know, get the water and put it down just right. I was so concerned about how I looked, and there was a lot of freedom in shaving it all off. But if we are so concerned with how we look physically, our, our outward appearance, how much more concerned ought we to be about our appearance before the one who created us? About being able to stand before God and be blameless in his presence. I've told you before, I heard a, a preacher say, when you stand before God in his glory, you better be as close to perfect as humanly possible. And he was using that as a, a means to stir up holiness in God's people. And you know, the, and there's part of it, that he's, he's correct about that. But you better be more than just as righteous as humanly possible. That's going to require more for you to stand before the presence of Almighty God than to be as righteous as humanly possible. That will not cut it. That won't even come close. Without Christ... You will stand before God on the last day, but there will be no blamelessness. There will be no joy at all if you stand before him without Christ. You will have accumulated for yourself the stains of sin and great shame before the glorious presence of God. Great dread will come over you. Imagine standing in a room crowded with your family and friends as your worst sins are read out loud. And the shame and dread of that moment cannot compare to the shame and dread of standing before God Almighty in your own righteousness. It will not do. 
How then can we stand before the presence of His glory with great joy? It will only be by God's grace lavished upon those who are in Christ Jesus. See, the emphasis in these verses is on God's power and ability, not on our power and ability. You do not have the ability to keep yourself from stumbling, and you do not have the ability to present yourself before God's glorious presence blameless. But the very thing God demands, He provides. He has demanded that we stand before Him blameless, and He has provided that blamelessness in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So this is the what we call the active obedience of Christ. The active obedience of Christ is as important to us as His atoning death on the cross. His active obedience refers to the fact that He perfectly obeyed the Father and fulfilled every jot and tittle of the law for us by His life every day of his life. While we accrue a debt of sin every day of our lives, Christ accrued a credit of righteousness by his obedience. So as righteous as humanly possible, if we're speaking of the human, Jesus Christ, if we're speaking of the God-man, Jesus Christ, well then there's enough righteousness for you. And when a person embraces Jesus Christ by faith, his righteousness is put into their account. On the other hand, their sin is put upon Christ who died on the cross for sinners. He died to pay the penalty that sinners earned for him. See, what, what Jude has in mind here is envisioning that future day of glorification when we stand before His presence in blame, blamelessness. So that, that day is not technically justification. right? Justification is what God declares over us when we come to Him in faith. He says, you are perfectly righteous in my sight. Not only as if you've never sinned, but as if you have lived every day in perfect holiness for my glory. You are justified if you have come to Christ in faith. But that day, that day that Jude is envisioning is our glorification. It is when we will have walked through this life having been justified through faith in Jesus, gradually growing in sanctification and becoming more like Jesus until those two things finally meet. Until the declaration of what we are and our sanctification is completed and they will match, and it will result in glorification before him. Jude's aim here, I I think, is that we would envision that glorious day, your future glorification. Do Do you see what you will be, Christian? Do you see your future glorification as you stand before him in great joy? Jude's aim here is that we would envision that future glorification and that it would enable us and empower us to live joyfully with faith in God in our present circumstances. In your trials. In the difficulties you're facing day to day, in the the humdrum of daily life, where you're wondering, is it worth it? Is it? Is the cost that I'm paying worth it to live for God's glory? 
Is the struggle contending for the faith, is it worth it? Jude would have you envision your future glorification and conclude it is all worth it. In every struggle, envision your future glorification and let it move you to joyful adoration of the God who is worthy. Consider too, though, how this understanding of this future presentation before the Lord changes how we view others in this current age. It teaches us, for instance, that there is no judgment, no place for judgment for the Christian of others based on the things of the flesh. How do you treat the poor, the outcast, the abused? As Tracy prayed this morning for widows and orphans, how do you treat those who are most maligned by our culture or overlooked or ignored? Consider the one you mistreat, the one you oppose, the one you mock, may be one of these who is in Christ Jesus. And on that last day, they will be one standing before God's glorious presence in radiant beauty. And will you oppress them? Will you mistreat such a one? Consider also the implications that this has for how we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ. In our local church as well as other brothers and sisters. Now it's not that we should, un- that we should treat unbelievers poorly. All have been made in God's image and for His glory and are worthy of honor and respect. But consider in light of this future presentation, in light of this glorification, how ridiculous unforgiveness and bitterness and division is among brothers and sisters in Christ. When they stand before God's presence completely forgiven, will you still have had something against them? Will you still hold on to unforgiveness against one who is presented in such a way before God's glory? You see, understanding this glorious future event impacts our lives here and now. How we live through our trials, how we relate to other brothers and sisters, how we relate to those around us. In light of how we will appear before God, in Christ's perfect righteousness and with great joy, how ought we to live in this current age until he returns? How could we not delight in such a glorious God who is able, who certainly will do all these things? Jude also delights, however, in who God is, not only in what God will surely do and is able to do for us, but just in the worthiness of who God is. He calls his readers to delight in this, the worthiness of God's identity. Notice the two aspects of God's identity according to Jude. First, he is the only God. And second, he is our Savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jude echoes the great confession of God's people throughout history. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. In the prophet Isaiah, the Lord declares, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. And again, he says, I am the Lord and beside me, there is no Savior. What this means is that 
All other so-called gods are merely idols. They're pretenders. They are figments of our imagination. They are nothings. The things that you count as worthy of your worship and adoration, they are nothing. They're mere idols. They are not God. They are not worthy of your adoration and your ultimate delight. God is the one who created the universe out of nothing. He sustains it by His power, holding it together by His grace and mercy. He is at work fulfilling His plan in the world, and it cannot be thwarted. This is what it means to be God. You are all-powerful. You are all-knowing. You are present everywhere. This is God. There is no place we could ever travel to in the far reaches of space where He is not there. They've sent out satellites far into space and they keep going and they keep going and they keep going. They will never go where God is not. This is who God is. He is the only God. And He is our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. He wants his, Jude wants his readers to know where their hope is. So he ends his letter in the same way he began it, focusing in on the person and work of God who saves sinners. Jude knows just as well as we do that our temptation and tendency is to find other objects of worship, to find other persons or things which will be to us a savior. So ask yourself this question, to what or to whom do you go when you have lost all Maybe you haven't had to face that question in your life up to this point. You've never been at such a point where you just feel you've lost all hope. As I've, I mentioned last week, the Mercers are facing a very difficult trial right now. Tom Mercer is the pastor at Christ Covenant Church, and his granddaughter has leukemia. Where would you go in that situation? something that's so important to you with the possibility of that being taken away? Where would you go? I'm so thankful for Tom and his response of faith in the midst of this. He's, he's brokenhearted. He is sorry for this little, little one that is so precious in his sight. And he has responded in the midst of this with faith. I've, been, I've, I've told him, I've been so encouraged just that you keep clinging on to Christ who is your strength and your hope. I don't know if I would respond that way. I, I would be tempted to, to go towards other idols, to find other things that would be my Savior in the midst of such a horrible situation. The person or the thing to which you go might just be your functional Savior. God does provide us with good gifts of comfort in this life. Family and friends, food and drink can be comforting. But you must be very careful not to confuse the gifts of the Savior with the only one who is your Savior. God, the only Savior through our Lord Jesus Christ. The problem with those things 
will be that you will begin worshiping them. You'll begin delighting in those things as you should delight in God. And so with this doxology, Jude calls us to join him in delighting in God. He is the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And now we come to the last phrase, the conclusion. Up to this point, Jude has just said, to the God who is able, to the only God, our Savior, to him what? To him, this one God who keeps us by his power and by his grace, the one who presents us as blameless before him, before his glorious presence, to the only God, our Savior, to him be glory, majesty, dominion, authority, before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. This is a sort of prayer. It's a prayer in similar fashion to our Father who is in heaven. Hallowed be your name. May your name be glorified and lifted up. May all the peoples praise you. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. These are a piling up of attributes, of things that belong to God and to God alone in order that we would see He is worthy. And just as the cherry on top, Jude cannot stop himself before all time, now and forever. If there's any doubt about when he's talking about or what is included in this list of attributes of things that belong to God, have no question. It all belongs to him. He is worthy. It is a prayer that God would be worshipped as he ought to be worshipped. That he would be acknowledged for who he is and what he does, that he would be seen as worthy because he is. I want to close with the time of reflection as we have before. As we consider the message of Jude here in this doxology, let's spend a few moments quietly reflecting upon a couple of things in particular. You can close your eyes, you can bow your heads if you, if you want to, if that helps you be able to reflect on these things. You surely would acknowledge the incomparable worth of Jesus with your words, but how does that work itself out in your life? So first consider, by your actions, by your daily behaviors, how you spend your money, your time, what sorts of things are you proclaiming as worthy of your adoration and worship. Spend a moment confessing this to God and admit if you have worshipped other persons or other things in the place of God.